0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today, Chapter 2, from The Whisperer in the Darkness, by H.P. Lovecraft. As was only natural under the circumstances, this picot debating finally got into print in the form of letters to the Arkham Advertiser, some of which were copied in the press of those Vermont regions whence the flood stories came. The Rutland Herald gave half a page of extracts from the letters on both sides, while the Brattleboro Reformer printed one of my long historical and mythological summaries in full, with some accompanying comments in the Pen Drifter's thoughtful column which supported and applauded my skeptical conclusions. By the spring of 1928, I was almost a well-known figure in Vermont, notwithstanding the fact that I had never set foot in the state. Then came the challenging letters from Henry Akeley which impressed me so profoundly, "'and which took me for the first and last time "'to that fascinating realm of of crowded green precipices "'and muttering forest streams. "'Most of what I know of Henry Wentworth Akeley "'was gathered by correspondence with his neighbors "'and with his only son in California "'after my experience in his lonely farmhouse. "'He was, I discovered, "'the last representative on his home soil "'of a long, locally distinguished line of jurists, "'administrators, and gentlemen agriculturists. "'In him, however,' The family mentally had veered away from practical affairs to pure scholarship, so that he had been a notable student of mathematics, astronomy, biology, anthropology, and folklore at the University of Vermont. I had never previously heard of him, and he did not give many autobiographical details in his communications, but from the first I saw that he was a man of character, education, and intelligence, albeit a recluse with very little worldly sophistication. Despite the incredible nature of what he claimed, I could not help at once taking Akeley more seriously than I had taken any of the other challengers of my views. For one thing, he was really close to the actual phenomena, visible and tangible, that he speculated so grotesquely about, and for another thing, he was amazingly willing to leave his conclusions in a tentative state like a true man of science. He had no personal preferences to advance, and was always guided by what he took to be solid evidence— Of course I began by considering him mistaken, but gave him credit for being intelligently mistaken, and at no time did I emulate some of his friends in attributing his ideas, and his fear of the lonely green hills, to insanity. I could see that there was a great deal to the man, and knew that what he reported must surely come from strange circumstance deserving investigation, however little it might have to do with the fantastic causes he assigned.' Later on I received from him certain material proofs which placed the matter on a somewhat different and bewilderingly bizarre basis. I cannot do better than transcribe in full, so far as is possible, the long letter in which Akeley introduced himself, and which formed such an important landmark in my own intellectual history. It is no longer in my possession, but my memory holds almost every word of its portentous message, and again I affirm my confidence in the sanity of the man who wrote it. Here is the text, a text which reached me in the cramped, archaic-looking scroll of one who had obviously not mingled much with the world during his sedate, scholarly life. R.F.D. 2, Townsend, Wyndham County, Vermont, May 5, 1928, Albert M. Wilmarth, Esquire, 118 Saltonstall Street, Arkham, Massachusetts. My dear sir, I have read with great interest the Brattleboro Reformers reprint, April twenty third of twenty-eight, of your letter on the recent stories of strange bodies seen floating in our flooded streams last fall, and on the curious folklore they so well agree with. It is easy to see why an outlander would take the position you take, and even why Pendrifter agrees with you. That is the attitude generally taken by educated persons both in and out of Vermont, and was my own attitude as a young man. I am now fifty-seven. "'before my studies, both general and in Davenport's book, "'led me to do some exploring in parts of the hills thereabouts, "'not usually visited. "'I was directed toward such studies by the queer old tales "'I used to hear from elderly farmers of the more ignorant sort. "'But now I wish I'd let the whole matter alone. "'I might say, with all proper modesty, "'that the subject of anthropology and folklore "'is by no means strange to me. "'I took a good deal of it at college.' and I'm familiar with most of the standard authorities, such as Tyler, Lubbock, Fraser, Quatrefages, Murray, Osborne, Keith, Boole, G. Eliot Smith, and so on. It is no news to me that tales of hidden races are as old as all mankind. I have seen the reprints of letters from you, and those agreeing with you, in the Rutland Herald, and I guess I know about where your controversy stands at the present time. What I desire to say now is that I'm afraid your adversaries are nearer right than yourself, even though all reason seems to be on your side. They are nearer right than they realize themselves, for of course they only go by theory, and cannot know what I know. If I knew as little of the matter as they, I would feel justified in believing as they do. I would be wholly on your side. You can see that I'm having a hard time getting to the point, probably because I really dread getting to the point, but the upshot of the matter is that I have certain evidence that monstrous things do indeed live in the woods on the high hills which nobody visits. I have not seen any of the things floating in the rivers, as reported, but I have seen things like them under circumstances I dread to repeat. I have seen footprints, and of late have seen them nearer my own home. I live in the old Akeley place south of Townjin Village, on the site of Dark Mountain. Then I dare to tell you now, "'I have overheard voices in the woods at certain points "'that I will not even begin to describe on paper. "'At one place I heard them so much "'that I took a phonograph therewith, "'a dictaphone attachment, and wax blank, "'and I shall try to arrange to have you hear the record I got. "'I have run it on the machine "'for some of the old people up here, "'and one of the voices had nearly scared them paralyzed "'by reason of its likeness to a certain voice, "'that buzzing voice in the woods which Davenport mentions, "'that their grandmothers have told about "'and mimicked for them.' "'I know what most people think "'of a man who tells about "'hearing voices. "'But before you draw conclusions, "'just listen to this record "'and ask some of the older "'backwoods people "'what they think of it. "'If you can account for it normally, "'very well. "'But there must be "'something behind it. "'Ex nihilo, nihil fit, "'you know. "'Now my object in writing you "'is not to start an argument, "'but to give you information "'which I think a man of your taste "'will find deeply interesting. "'This is private.' Publicly, I am on your side, for certain things show me that it does not do for people to know too much about these matters. My own studies are now wholly private, and I would not think of saying anything to attract people's attention and cause them to visit the places I have explored. It is true, terribly true, that there are non-human creatures watching us all the time, with spies among us, gathering information. It is from a wretched man who, if he was sane, as I think he was, was one of those spies "'that I got a large part of my clues to the matter. "'He later killed himself, "'but I have reason to think there are others now. "'The things come from another planet, "'being able to live in interstellar space "'and fly through it on clumsy, powerful wings "'which have a way of resisting the ether, "'but which are too poor at steering "'to be of much use in helping them about on earth. "'I will tell you about this later "'if you do not dismiss me at once as a madman. "'They come here to get metals "'from mines that go deep under the hills.' "'and I think I know where they come from. "'They will not hurt us if we let them alone, "'but no one can say what will happen "'if we get too curious about them. "'Of course a good army of men "'could wipe out their mining colony. "'That is what they're afraid of. "'But if that happened, "'more would come from the outside, "'any number of them. "'They could easily conquer the earth, "'but have not tried so far "'because they have not needed to. "'They would rather leave things as they are "'to save bother.' "'I think they mean to get rid of me "'because of what I've discovered. "'There is a great black stone "'with unknown hieroglyphics half-worn away "'which I found in the woods on Round Hill, "'east of here. "'And after I took it home, "'everything became different. "'If they think I suspect too much, "'they will either kill me "'or take me off the earth "'to where they come from. "'They like to take away men of learning "'once in a while "'to keep informed on the state of things "'in the human world. "'This leads me to my secondary purpose "'in addressing you, namely, "'to urge you to hush up the present debate, "'rather than give it more publicity. "'People must be kept away from these hills, "'and in order to effect this, "'their curiosity ought not to be aroused any further. "'Heaven knows there is peril enough anyway, "'with promoters and real estate men flooding Vermont "'with herds of summer people to overrun the wild places "'and cover the hills with cheap bungalows. "'I shall welcome further communication with you, "'and shall try to send you that phonograph record "'and black stone,' which is so worn that photographs don't show much, by express, if you're willing. I say try, because I think those creatures have a way of tampering with things around here. There is a sullen, furtive fellow named Brown, on a farm near the village, who I think is their spy. Little by little they're trying to cut me off from our world because I know too much about their world. They have the most amazing way of finding out what I do. You may not even get this letter." I think I shall have to leave this part of the country and go live with my son in San Diego, California, if things get any worse. But it is not easy to give up the place you were born in, and where your family has lived for six generations. Also, I would hardly dare sell this house to anybody now that the creatures have taken notice of it. They seem to be trying to get the black stone back and destroy the phonograph record, but I shall not let them if I can help it. My great police dogs always hold them back, for there are very few here as yet. "'and they are clumsy in getting about. "'As I have said, "'their wings are not much use for short flights on earth. "'I am on the very brink of deciphering that stone, "'in a very terrible way, "'and with your knowledge of folklore, "'you may be able to supply the missing links enough to help me. "'I suppose you know all about the fearful myths "'antedating the coming of man to the earth, "'the Yog-Sothoth and Cthulhu cycles, "'which are hinted at in the Necronomicon. "'I had access to a copy of that once,' "'and hear that you have one in your college library "'under lock and key. "'To conclude, Mr. Wilmarth, "'I think that with our respective studies "'we can be very useful to each other. "'I don't wish to put you in any peril, "'and I suppose I ought to warn you "'that possession of the stone and the record "'won't be very safe, "'but I think you will find any risks "'worth running for the sake of knowledge. "'I will drive down to Newfane "'or Brattleboro to send whatever you "'authorize me to send, for the express "'office's "'there are more to be trusted. "'I might say that I live quite alone now, "'since I can't keep hired help any more. "'They won't stay because of the things "'that try to get near the house at night, "'and that keeps the dogs barking continually. "'I'm glad I didn't get as deep as this "'into the business while my wife was alive, "'for it would have driven her mad. "'Hoping that I'm not bothering you unduly, "'and that you will decide to get in touch with me "'rather than throw this letter into the waste basket "'as a madman's raving. "'I am yours very truly,' Henry W. Akeley. P.S. I'm making some extra prints of certain photographs taken by me, which I think will help to prove a number of the points I have touched on. The old people think they are monstrously true. I shall send you these very soon, if you are interested. H. W. A. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. And now we return to H.P. Lovecraft's The Whisperer in the Darkness, Part 2. It would be difficult to describe my sentiments upon reading this strange document for the first time. By all ordinary rules, I ought to have laughed more loudly at these extravagances than at the far milder theories which had previously moved me to mirth. Yet something in the tone of the letter made me take it with a paradoxical seriousness. "'Not that I believed for a moment in the hidden race from the stars "'which my correspondent spoke of, "'but that, after some grave preliminary doubts, "'I grew to feel oddly sure of his sanity and sincerity, "'and of his confrontation by some genuine, "'though singular and abnormal phenomenon "'which he could not explain except in this imaginative way. "'It could not be as he thought it,' I reflected. "'Yet on the other hand, "'it could not be otherwise than worthy of investigation.' The man seemed unduly excited and alarmed about something, but it was hard to think that all cause was lacking. He was so specific and logical in certain ways, and after all, his yarn did fit in so perplexingly well with some of the old myths, even the wildest Indian legends, that he had really overheard disturbing voices in the hills, and had really found the black stone he spoke about, was wholly possible, despite the crazy inferences he had made." Inferences probably suggested by the man who had claimed to be a spy of the outer beings, and had later killed himself. It was easy to deduce that this man must have been wholly insane, but that he probably had a streak of perverse outward logic which made the naive Akeley, already prepared for such things by his folklore studies, believe his tale. As for the latest developments, it appeared from his inability to keep hired help that Akeley's humbly rustic neighbors were as convinced as he— "'that his house was besieged by uncanny things at night. "'The dogs really barked, too. "'And then the matter of that phonograph record, "'which I could not but believe he had obtained in the way he said. "'It must mean something, "'whether animal noises deceptively like human speech, "'or the speech of some hidden, night-haunting human being "'decayed to a state not much above that of lower animals. "'From this my thoughts went back to the black hieroglyph stone.' And to speculations upon what it might mean, then too, what of the photographs which Akeley said he was about to send, and which the old people had found so convincingly terrible, as I reread the cramped handwriting, I felt as never before that my credulous opponents might have more on their side than I had conceded after all, there might be some queer and perhaps hereditarily misshapen outcast in those shunned hills, even though no such race of star-born monsters as folklore claimed and if there were, then the presence of strange bodies in the flooded streams would not be wholly beyond belief. Was it too presumptuous to suppose that both the old legends and the recent reports had this much of reality behind them? But even as I harboured these doubts, I felt ashamed that so fantastic a piece of bizarrerie as Henry Akeley's wild letter had brought them up. In the end I answered Akeley's letter, "'adopting a tone of friendly interest "'and soliciting further particulars. "'His reply came almost by return mail "'and contained, true to promise, "'a number of Kodak views of scenes and objects "'illustrating what he had to tell. "'Glancing at these pictures "'as I took them from the envelope, "'I felt a curious sense of fright "'and nearness to forbidden things, "'for in spite of the vagueness of most of them, "'they had a damnably suggestive power "'which was intensified "'by the fact of their being genuine photographs.' Actual optical links with what they portrayed, and the product of an impersonal transmitting process without prejudice, fallibility, or mendacity. The more I looked at them, the more I saw that my sinuous estimate of Akeley and his story had not been unjustified. Certainly, these pictures carried conclusive evidence of something in the Vermont hills which was at least vastly outside the radius of our common knowledge and belief. The worst thing of all was the footprint a view taken where the sun shone on a mud patch somewhere in a deserted upland. This was no cheaply counterfeited thing, I could see at a glance, for the sharply defined pebbles and grass blades in the field of vision gave a clear index of scale and left no possibility of a tricky double exposure. I called the thing a footprint, but claw-print would be a better term. Even now I can scarcely describe it, save to say that it was hideously crab-like." and that there seemed to be some ambiguity about its direction. It was not a very deep or fresh print, but seemed to be about the size of an average man's foot. From a central pad, pairs of sawtoothed nippers projected in opposite directions, quite baffling as to function, if indeed the whole object were exclusively an organ of locomotion. Another photograph, evidently a time exposure taken in deep shadow, was of the mouth of a woodland cave with a boulder of rounded regularity choking the aperture. On the bare ground in front of it, one could just discern a dense network of curious tracks, and when I studied the picture with a magnifier, I felt uneasily sure that the tracks were like the one in the other view. A third pictured pictured showed a druid-like circle of standing stones on the summit of a wild hill. Around the cryptic circle the grass was very much beaten down and worn away, though I could not detect any footprints even with the glass. The extreme remoteness of the place was apparent from the veritable sea of tenantless mountains which formed the background and stretched away toward a misty horizon. But the most disturbing of all the views was that of the footprint. The most curiously suggestive was that of the great black stone found in the round hill woods. Akeley had photographed it on what was evidently a study table, for I could see rows of books and a bust of Milton in the background. The thing, as nearly as one might guess, had faced the camera vertically with a somewhat irregularly curved surface of one by two feet, but to say anything definite about that surface, or about the general shape of the whole mass, almost defies the power of language. What outlandish geometrical principles had guided its cutting, for artificially cut it surely was, I could not even begin to guess, and never before had I seen anything which struck me as so strangely and unmistakably alien to this world." Of the hieroglyphics on the surface, I could discern very few, but one or two that I did see gave rather a shock. Of course, they might be fraudulent, for others besides myself had read the monstrous and abhorred necromicon of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred but it nevertheless made me shiver to recognize certain ideographs which study had taught me to link with the most blood-curdling and blasphemous whispers of things that had had a kind of mad half-existence before the earth and other inner worlds of the solar system were made. Of the five remaining pictures, three were of swamp and hill scenes which seemed to bear traces of hidden and unwholesome tenancy. Another was of a queer mark in the ground very near Akeley's house, which he said he had photographed the morning after a night on which the dogs had barked, "'more violently than usual. "'It was very blurred, "'and one could really draw no certain conclusions from it, "'but it did seem faintishly like that other mark "'or claw print photographed on the deserted upland. "'The final picture was of the Akeley place itself, "'a trim white house of two stories and attic, "'about a century and a quarter old, "'and with a well-kept lawn and stone-bordered path "'leading up to a tastefully carved Georgian doorway. "'There were several huge police dogs on the lawn,' "'squatting near a pleasant-faced man "'with a close-cropped gray beard "'whom I took to be Akeley himself. "'His own photographer, one might infer, "'from the tube-connected bulb in his right hand. "'From the pictures I turned to the bulky, "'closely written letter itself, "'and for the next three hours "'was immersed in a gulf of unutterable horror. "'Where Akeley had given only outlines before, "'he now entered into minute details, "'presenting long transcripts of words "'overheard in the woods at night.' long accounts of monstrous pinkish forms spied in thickets at twilight on the hills, and a terrible cosmic narrative derived from the application of profound and varied scholarship to the endless bygone discourses of the mad self-styled spy who had killed himself. I found myself faced by names and terms that I had heard elsewhere in the most hideous of connections. Yugoth, Great Cthulhu, Tzadhagwa, Yagsothoth, Ria, R'lyeh, Azathoth, Hastur, Yon, Leng, the Lake of Hall, Bethmura, the Yellow Sign, Lemur Cthulhos, Bran, and the Magnum Inominandum, and was drawn back through nameless eons and inconceivable dimensions to worlds of elder, outer entity at which the crazed author of the Necromicon had only guessed in the vaguest way. I was told of the pits of primal life, and of the streams that had trickled down therefrom, and finally of the tiny rivulets from one of those streams which had become entangled with the destinies of our own earth. My brain whirled, and where before I had attempted to explain things away, I now began to believe in the most abnormal and incredible wonders. The array of vital evidence was damnably vast and overwhelming, and the cool, scientific attitude of Akeley, an attitude removed as far as imaginable from the demented, the fanatical, the hysterical, or even the extravagantly speculative. "'had a tremendous effect on my thought and judgment. "'By the time I laid the frightful letter aside, "'I could understand the fears he had come to maintain, "'and was ready to do anything in my power "'to keep people away from those wild, haunted hills. "'Even now, when time has dulled the impression "'and made me half question my own experience "'and horrible doubts, "'there are things in that letter of Akeley's "'which I would not quote, "'or even form into words on paper.' I am almost glad that the letter and record and photographs are gone now, and I wish, for reasons I shall soon make clear, that the new planet beyond nip had not been discovered. With the reading of that letter, my public debating about the Vermont horror permanently ended. Arguments from opponents remained unanswered or put off with promises, and eventually the controversy petered out into oblivion. During May and June, I was in constant correspondence with Akeley, though once in a while a letter would be lost, so that we would have to retrace our ground and perform considerable laborious copying. What we were trying to do as a whole was to compare notes in matters of obscure mythological scholarship and arrive at a clearer correlation of the Vermont horrors with the general body of the primitive world legend. For one thing, we virtually decided that these morbidities and the hellish Himalayan Migo were one, were one in the same order of incarnated nightmare. There was also absorbing zoological conjectures, which I would have referred to Professor Dexter in my own college, but for Akeley's imperative command to tell no one of the matter before us. If I seem to disobey that command now, it is only because I think that at this stage a warning about those farther Vermont hills, and about those Himalayan peaks which bold explorers are more and more determined to ascend, is more conducive to public safety than silence would be. One specific thing we were leading up to was a deciphering of the hieroglyphics on that infamous black stone. A deciphering which might well place us in possession of secrets deeper and more dizzying than any formerly known to man. Join us next week Sunday night for Chapter 3 of The Whisperer in the Darkness by H.P. Lovecraft. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review, Apple Listers, for 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. We would appreciate that very much, and it helps new listeners find us. Until next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone, stay safe. Be careful in those Vermont hills, and we'll be back soon.